Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics for this evening's event, the Economica Phillips Curve Lecture. Phillips Curve Lecture. <laughs> named after the Phillips Curve article uh, published in Economica and written by Bill Phillips, a former student and faculty at the LSE. Uh, my name is Ivana Tenreiro. I'm a professor of economics and member of the Center for Macroeconomics here at the LSE. And I will be chairing this event as my colleague, Wouter Denhans, plane unfortunately got delayed. He might still make it, uh, we'll see. Uh, the lecture is hosted by the LSE's Department of Economics and Economica, which is the LSE's uh, house international peer review academic journal covering research in all branches of economics, not just macro. Economica turned uh, 100 years old in 2021, and the aim of the Department of Economics is to commemorate it by publishing 100 papers uh, written by former LSE students and current and former LSE faculty. So if this is you and you want to find out more about it, please take a look at the Department of Economics website. I'm very pleased to be here today to welcome Ivan Berling. Um, Ivan is the Robert Solo Professor of Economics at MIT, where he has been since earning his PhD from the University of Chicago back in 2002. Ivan is one of the most prolific academics of his generation. He has written many influential papers in macroeconomics, international finance, and public finance. Uh, amongst many merits and recognitions, he is um, now a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the Econometric Society, and a fellow of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Turning to the lecture, um, Ivan will talk about inflation. As we all know, over the past three years, uh, inflation increased very rapidly, and it's now coming down. Ivan will discuss how all the insights from academia and lessons from past experiences analyzed with new frameworks can be used to shed light on this recent inflation episode. For Twitter uh, users in the audience, the hashtag for the event is uh, hash LSE Phillips. And I would like to uh, ask you to please put your phones on silent now so as not to disrupt the flow. Uh, this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put questions to Ivan and uh, both here in the room and also online uh, uh, you can post uh, your questions. I'll, I'll try to read um, uh, those. Uh, for now, please uh, join me in welcoming Ivan uh, to, this, uh, to today's lecture. Uh, he will talk about inflation, new and old perspectives. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's really my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me, and thank you, Silvana, for those words. Uh, Silvana and I know each other back from Argentina, so you don't have to believe everything she said. We're good friends. Um, and this 
it's really a pleasure and honor to be here to talk about uh, inflation for the Philips lecture. And I looked this up, and it looks like I would be the only person who really talked about the Phillips curve in the Phillips lecture, potentially. Um, and I thought it was a requirement. So when they asked me to give this talk, I said, well, but I need to write more papers on inflation then. <laughs> um, and so I did. Um, but, <laughs> but first, um, let me show you just some excerpts from this fabulous paper by Phillips that I think will show up later as themes in, in my lecture. Um, and I was rereading this paper, this classic. It's such a classic that we don't always read it. We read it through the lens of other people's interpretation. Um, but, you know, he already, you know, many things that he said were, were oversimplified later. So he, for instance, emphasized that the relationship was not linear. Um, he also emphasized that there are other factors affecting inflation, and in particular rate of change of unemployment, not just unemployment. And finally, he even made uh, uh, room for thinking about import prices, something very, you know, uh, important these days, right? If you think of these days. So he was already thinking outside the, the basic curve, and I'll come back to that later. So inflation is back, and everyone's interested in it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm Argentine, so I've always been thinking about inflation in some sense. Um, but in recent events in, in the development, the developed world have brought inflation back to the forefront. And I think we do have some very good uh, frameworks and understandings of inflation, but you see also a lot of debate. And I think uh, some of this debate is good, uh, it's about the evidence, but some of it is almost conceptually about what frameworks we should be using. The bad version of that, I like to say, is kind of, you see ideologically driven debates, myths, or slogans, which I think of that as kind of summarizing bad theory. Um, good theory, I think, is a lens through which we interpret events. Um, and I think this recent ep episodes is an excellent opportunity to think about this good theory. Okay? So good theory doesn't mean it's complicated, or theory, very theoretical. It's just the simplest way to make sense of, 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 of things. And so my thing today is that there's much to be learned from recent events, that we have to go back, and we need some new thinking and also go back to uh, in, in some cases, some old thinking and, 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 and revamp that. And we, in, in the process, maybe challenge some engraved traditional takes that I think have taken hold much too strongly. Okay? Um, so one theme I'm going to have, which if you're a macroeconomist, you've uh, experienced this. I, I too was brought up thinking that we need to refound macroeconomics on microeconomics. Okay? And the version 1.0 of this is that we need to lay down microfoundations and in a very simple, in the simplest way, uh, sometimes this is done with just a representative agent or something like this, what we mainly gain there is some logical consistency of, of our theories, okay? Version 2.0 is we take more seriously the microeconomics and the heterogeneity uh, or risk, and uh, that's important for some questions. That's important even for questions that don't have to do with uh, fluctuations, aggregate fluctuations or shocks. And version 3.0, which I'm going to emphasize today, sometimes we need to take into account that the shocks we receive are very asymmetric. They're not aggregate shocks. They're asymmetric across sectors. Okay, so that's going to be an important theme today. But my title also says the old, not just the new. And there I want to say there's an important development uh, relative to the Phillips article was the, the Friedman and Phelps and later Lucas uh, expectations augmentation of this curve. Okay? 
And uh, one of the things I'm going to keep going back to is that this was super important, this, this augmentation, but that we left in the background a lot of things that were being discussed at the time that were also important. Okay? And in particular, that there's rich microaggregation stories that were being told then that got, I think, uh, laid in the background. Okay? And they were less influential. So in this lecture, I'm going to go back and, and think about this, think of recent events, and think about, uh, as I said, how to think about these events through the lens of some models and question the models that people typically use. I won't be trying to settle the score on who was right or who's wrong completely. I have some opinions, but um, it's not going to be just about that. Okay? And also, towards the end, I'm going to motivate it by events, but write down something that maybe completely transcends it uh, in terms of, uh, of trying to think harder about inflation. Okay, so I'm going to show you just some basic facts that I'm not going to spend much time. Many of you know these facts. They are characters in my play. Okay, so I just want you to have a, a, remind you of my characters. This is inflation for goods and for services in the U.S. Okay, many things are very similar in the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe. I checked with different weights. Okay, uh, maybe import and energy prices were more important here, but they were so also in the U.S. Uh, so with different uh, emphasis, there you can tell roughly the similar stories. All right. And this uh, shows that you know, we first had inflation in goods, and then following that, uh, had a smaller but persistent rise in, in, in inflation in services. Okay? More characters of my play. Supply shocks, they played a role. There are many uh, places you can look for this. This is in particular in transport costs, but there were many other uh, cases. Think of chips or lumber. Uh, that, you know, there were shortages uh, from 2001-2002. Okay? Another character in my play that often is, is, is discussed in the context of inflation is expectations. And people worry about expectations going up or not, and uh, these are, there, there are many, many measures of expectations. This graph plot a few, okay? Um, and the important thing is that they did go up. Um, it went up a little always lagging inflation in, in the U.S., so they hardly would work as an explanation for inflation going up, but people were worried still that this would become entrenched if inflation expectations moved up. And finally, the other, my last actor, my last figure here, and I'm going fast on these figures because I think they're familiar stories for most people, is that it wasn't just prices, but also wages going up. And uh, this is actually the timing of prices and wages in, in the US. And there was a concern that uh, as price inflation fell, that wage growth would create a, a wage price spiral that would uh, bring us back to higher inflation. Okay, so this is a, the other character in my play. So in terms of the, how these characters fit into the play, the play being the, the US policy narrative, but I, I've checked, it's very similar in UK and Europe area with different uh, timing slightly or different emphasis. But there was a huge shock with the pandemic uh, that was very asymmetric, that involved a lot of reallocation across sectors. People agreed on that. And I was surprised to see pretty quick consensus from academics and policymakers that there was a need for a large government policy. I think uh, this is a moment I was pretty proud of in the economics profession for its uh, quick reaction and conclusions and quite a strong consensus on that. And after the pandemic, uh, when, you know, during the reopening and the recovery, there, there's more debate and discussion and room for disagreements. In particular, in the US, there was a very large stimulus at, at the beginning of 21 that people debated. Some people thought it was unnecessary or too big. Monetary policy also remained loose 
through 2021, some people thought sh they should have started tightening sooner. Okay? So in terms of teams, I promise not to get into teams too much. Uh, you might have heard team transitory versus team permanent. Team transitory would say, uh, you don't really need to react against this inflation, it's going to go away. And team permanent, more worried about uh, this looking like the 70s to caricature things. Okay? I think this is a mistake. We should never have called it that. It should have been team cost push versus team excess demand. I think it fits better what we were really talking about. And that would be one theme I have. Okay? And then there was inflation expectations. So you see how I inserted one of my characters in the play, uh, expectations. That played both ways. At the beginning, in 21, it was used to say, we don't have to worry that much about inflation in the US because inflation expectations are well anchored. And since inflation is mainly what drives, inf inflation expectations is mainly what drives inflation, then we don't have to worry about inflation picking up. But then when inflation did rise, the reverse argument was used uh, to say, no, we have to be really worried because inflation is going up. That's going to drive up inflation expectations. And then we're going to have to live with, with high inflation due to these expectations. All right, finally, uh, in, in late 22 in the US, uh, price inflation dropped, I think, it, it, similarly uh, here. And way, the, the, the main concern became that wage growth uh, remained high. And the concern would be that that would feed back into prices in a wage price spiral manner. Okay? So those are kind of uh, how I see the narrative. Uh, and today, in the U.S. in particular, maybe here there's uh, more room to wait, but there's a sense that uh, some people would say, mission accomplished, we're done, uh, with a soft landing. Others maybe say, let's wait a little longer to, 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 to make that call. But this is roughly the, the, the policy narrative as I see it that I'm going to be talking about. Again, like I said, in U.K. and Euro, I think things were pretty similar. The fiscal policy reactions were different. Uh, and there obviously was a greater impact uh, from, from the Ukraine war than in the US. So let me put up an equation that some of you might be familiar with, which is uh, a version of the Phillips curve uh, uh, inflation augmented equation. So uh, here you see that the first term is capturing excess demand uh, multiplied by a parameter kappa that gives us the sensitivity of inflation to excess demand. The second term is capturing expectations. And the third term is like an error term that we sometimes call a cost push. Right? Um, so this is a very stylized Phillips curve. Now, let's answer a few questions. Does, you, you hear a lot of the debates are, is it supply or is it demand? Okay? From this perspective, uh, if I look at YD versus YS, it doesn't really matter which one's producing inflation. What matters is that there's a gap. Okay? So if we think of supply as this YS here, then it really doesn't matter if it's supply or demand. What matters is we have excess demand relative to supply. Okay? Instead, I think uh, what matters is this cost-push shock as a distinguishing feature, which is um, something I'm going to be addressing very soon. Okay, so the one question, though, is where does this come from? Where does this cost-push shock come from? Usually, it's seen as an equation. Sometimes it's thought as just a residual, um, and I'm, I think not taken as seriously because it kind of feels like a residual or something we don't have much to say about in our simplest macro models. Some of my effort has been there to say, no, we really have to think about that from a micro to macro perspective. The other thing I want to bring up is expectations here are mattering one for one in terms of impacting inflation. Okay? And that's the sense in which uh, there's a strong impact of expectations. It's almost like a self-fulfilling potential. Right? Um, and I'm going to question whether uh, expectations really have a one-to-one -one effect. Okay? So we're going to talk about that. 
And then finally missing here is the whole, there's, there's only inflation, so we can't talk about wages, so we're going to have to think about some other equation to think about that. So this is a little bit of an outline of the topics I'm going to be talking about, seen through the lens of the simple Phillips curve. And one way to think about the way I approach this subject is, we need a Phillips curve. We need an equation that tells us um, what inflation is. Some people say, no, the Phillips curve is dead, because if you plot for some countries, in a very simple minded way, you get a big scatter plot that doesn't look as good as the original Phillips order. Okay? And of course, that's, that's, um, that's not correct. It depends how much you condition on things. But the, what I want to stress here is also even this version at the top of the Phillips curve is just a, the simplest version. So what I want to do in a lot of the research I've done is kind of uh, think harder about just what generates inflation. And whatever that equation is, we should have one. If we're going to have an explanation for inflation, we're going to need one. Um, it can't be dead then. We, think we need to have an equation. So Phillips curve is just whatever equation you have to understand inflation. Okay? Um, and it might be more complicated. That's going to be the story I'm going to be telling. That it might be richer. All right. All right. Uh, so we need to explore that rich, uh, richer Phillips curve. Okay. So here's some papers I've written on inflation but uh, it looks like too many, so don't worry. I'm only going to talk about these four. <laughs> um, and um, these four are, are more tightly linked to the, the, the events of the pandemic, so I think I can fit them in this lecture and connect them in a way that, 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 that uh, touches with uh, the episodes. And I'm going to start with this first paper here that's um, on monetary policy in times of structural reallocation. So what is that paper about? Uh, Here's a, a simple fact that many know that the quantities, people, during the pandemic, they switched to buying a lot of goods because they were home and stayed away from services, and you see that in these quantities. In fact, that effect uh, was very strong during the, the lockdowns, but even continued after that. Okay, so a very persistent shift uh, across sectors. And here's um, uh, also work from home, the fraction of people working, uh, time work from home. There's there's other metrics that give a lower number for this, but, but they both uh, highlight that obviously during the pandemic this was especially high, but even uh, today this, this remains. So there's, this is just two plus to show you there was a big shock that was across sectors that were reallocated, changing the way the economy works. And these have not completely gone away. Right? So the first paper I wrote during the pandemic was really about that and justifying that we need uh, government transfers then that are targeted both for individuals and firms in, in principle to support these sectors not just from an insurance perspective or fairness but because of the macroeconomic effects that you would have on the, on the healthy sectors if you didn't have these transfers. Okay? So obviously some sectors we had to almost close down entirely but then if the workers there were not making any money they wouldn't be able to spend on the healthy sectors and it would have a macroeconomic effect. Okay? Um, so um, that, that didn't really speak to inflation, though. It was just about that initial uh, policy reaction. So in a follow-up paper we wrote, uh, we, we talked about how those same, that same asymmetry of the shocks implies that you would have a, 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 an endogenous cost per shock when you aggregate. Okay? So what we showed there is that these asymmetric shocks across sectors imply, in an aggregate uh, perspective, something like a cost per shock. Okay. Both in terms of this Phillips curve shifting, and most importantly, what I think is important is 
normatively, the cost push-shock, what it conveys is, um, you know, if you didn't have the cost push-shock, you would want to set supply equals demand for two reasons. One is it's good for supply to equals demand in general, and second, you would get zero inflation. So normatively, there's like a divine coincidence in that. But when you have this cost push-shock, now you face a trade-off between wanting to close the gap between supply and demand and not having any excess demand, uh, which is inefficient per se, and also generating zero inflation. You have a conflict. Okay? And so it's, it's not just an equation, but it, there's also a normative content in the background that's important here. So we showed that optimal policy faced with these very asymmetric shocks would imply that you want to tolerate higher inflation. Okay? I can show you the model on a figure, basically, which is, here's two sectors, okay? sector A and sector B. And suppose in normal times we're along the dotted line in terms of the demand curves. Okay? So we're exactly at the corner of these uh, supply curves. And the supply curves in this simple model we wrote down was simply, there's a certain amount of workers there, and they supply inelastically uh, their labor. Okay? So in that case, if suddenly you get a shift away from sector A towards sector B in demand, then you would have spare capacity in sector A, but you would get high inflation in sector B. <coughs> so there's a strong nonlinearity that's a little exaggerated here. In fact, uh, the same effects would be true if you just had a, a convex supply curve. Okay? Um, and that convex supply curve doesn't have to be there because of the labor market and workers. It could also be for other reasons. I'll get back to that later. But the important thing then is uh, this convexity implies that this reshift, the shifting of, of demand across sectors is going to imply a higher rate of inflation, okay, at the same time that we have spare capacity. So in terms of the Phillips curve, it's like a shift out, okay? Super simple argument. So here's a Phillips curve uh, plotting inflation against slack, okay? Um, and if you, if you get hit with this asymmetric shock, then the, the Phillips curve shifts out, okay? And now you can't get both, you can't get zero inflation and zero slack, okay? So you have to live with a trade-off. And in general, you're gonna tolerate higher inflation. Okay. In the paper, we go even further and think of the dynamic effects where the sectors need to reallocate resources, labor, and so on. And that implies something further interesting, which is the curve is also flatter, which implies that if you try to lower inflation, you're gonna to have to sacrifice even more in terms of output, okay? So there was kind of a, a, you know, a further dynamic effect here of that. That implies that not only do you have to accept some inflation optimally, but you may want to run the economy extra hot. The reason is that helps you reallocate faster, okay? So intuitively, uh, you're, you're, you're achieving this reallocation sooner and getting over with the problem sooner, okay? So this very simple micro story we thought was important, the one salient feature of the pandemic was this very asymmetric shock, how can we ignore it? We don't just want to go back to our macro 101 manuals, which are basically a one sector economy. Okay, it seemed this is a key. Uh, and it applied these very interesting results for us. We later discovered that Tobin, in a presidential address, had talked about, had sketched out an idea that's similar to this, okay? Here's some quotes. It is an essential feature that employment wages and prices are an aggregation of diverse, heterogeneous markets. And let me just talk about the bold. And also, in these markets, the supply is nonlinear. When you put the two together, he concluded that implies that, it, that when you have this, this more variance in the, in the demand, you're going to get higher inflation. Okay? However, 
this is his way of saying it's a cost push shock, that means we can no longer achieve both objectives and we're going to have to tolerate higher inflation. Okay? So he didn't have a formal motto, but he sketched out much of the same argument and I guess we were walking in, in the shoes of giants uh, when we wrote that paper. Let me talk about two other giants here, especially uh, Samuelson and Solo, especially in light of uh, uh, unfortunate recent passing of, of Solo. Um, the Phillips curve was something written for the UK, but then they popularized in the US, okay? With, a, with this paper, this is a classic. Um, and if you look at this paper, I think it's been caricatured as pushing a very simple static view of the Phillips curve. And if you read it, it's anything but that, okay? Uh, they go on pages and pages with very rich stories, and then in the last two pages, they just say, with all these caveats, let us still you know, make some predictions that are probably only valid for the next three or four years. That's the paper. It's amazing how badly it's caricatured. And uh, look at here. He's up, they already talked at the beginning about the fact that you don't just want to think of excess demand, demand pull, or you do have to think of cost push shocks, so shifts in the curve. Um, and moreover, he talked about Charles Schultz's idea, which is what Tobin was, I guess, expanding, which is this demand shift idea that across sectors, these asymmetric shocks will produce a cost push shock. All right? So I'm interpreting that through the lens of our model, what they're saying, uh, and supportive of this. And uh, finally, they concluded with strong words of caution and made those calculations, but they said, you know, it's going to be very hard always to know which shock we're hitting. Um, but it, in fact, they, they, they anticipated the Friedman uh, uh, Phelps uh, you know, expectation augmentation. They argued, this curve is there, but it's not necessarily we should take it as given and stable. It will be affected by policy. This is an amazing article that I, I think we, we typically caricature and tell uh, a very simple story. Okay, so let me get to one of those things that was mentioned here, expectations, which is my other character, and talk about a paper I wrote on the effect of expectations. So here's that Phillips curve again, and now I'm going to put aside the cost push for a moment and question instead whether that coefficient there should be one. Okay? And um, I think the idea, we have a very strong intuition that it's one, but, it, but do we really know? Okay? I want to ask, do we really know scientifically that that's the case? I think the one reason we think it's around one is that the simplest models that were written down had that property. Okay? But they were very stylized models, they're excellent models, but they're very stylized, that's not a place to get an answer for, the, for this coefficient, it's a place to get intuitions, uh, qualitative answers. So these two models maybe imply a phi near one. So you might say, well, let me try and answer this empirically. But what I'm going to say in a nutshell is that it's very hard. Okay? I, I think at present we cannot answer this empirically, we don't know the answer empirically. People have tried just using aggregate time series, they get uh, numbers between 0.65 and 0, but it's the usual problems with just using aggregate time series is you don't know what's exogenous, what's endogenous, is very tricky. More recent work, I think this very promising, it takes on a, looks at surveys and does experiments where they treat the survey participants with different information. Um, and here's, I'm citing a paper that I think is very interesting. They were not trying to get at this question, but if I divide one number in one table by another number in another table, I get a number of like 0.2 from their paper, okay? Now there's a huge caveat there similarly to uh, the previous caveat that, uh, it, you know, that, that this treatment doesn't necessarily just affect their expectations, so there's an issue of interpreting this number. But it's suggestive that 
maybe at least when we look empirically, it hasn't come out to be one. Okay? And yet it's so ingrained. I mean, it's not just academically ingrained. If you read any central bank's uh, speech, they talk about inflation expectation. They might write down an equation. They'll put a one in front of it. Okay? So I think it's important to ask how big is that effect, really. And I'm in good company again. So I read this also recently, uh, this beautifully titled paper by Bob Solo. Um, and first of all, he had a nice comment, I'm saying, as a side comment. He said, let's not call it the Phillips curve. Let's call it the Phillips surface. To emphasize the fact that there are many things affecting inflation. Okay? So surface would be a multivariate function. That's a sideshow here. I wanted to mention, he also says, I'm not ready to accept there's any strong evidence that the coefficient for inflation expectation is one. Okay? Uh, so I thought, I, I, you know, in the spirit of my, the title of my talk, Old and New, uh, to show you these quotes. Okay, but what do I do? Let's go to the new part. So what I do is, I'm going to take inflation expectations as a black box on the left and solve for, in, 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 in in a model of just hope theoretically what firms want to do in setting their prices and aggregate that up and produce what is the resulting inflation. So the thought experiment I'm going to run in a model is people wake up and they thought inflation was going to be zero yesterday, but now they think it's going to be 10%. Okay? How does that change their pricing behavior and how does that affect inflation? So I want to see the causal effect of people waking up, everything else the same, but they think inflation is going to be higher. Okay. Now, this has not been done because usually we close the model by modeling expectations in a certain way, either by rational expectations or learning, so we don't leave the expectations to be free. Okay. But to answer the question I want to answer, I really need them to be free because I want to do this experiment where I only change expectations. Okay. So usually instead people model this arrow back, they also model other aspects of the model like the consumption, investment, and policy. Uh, pieces, but instead I'm just going to focus on this piece. So it's a kind of a spirit of taking a step back, doing less, but then hopefully taking two steps forward in terms of getting sharper answers. And, the, and whatever I derive here, or whatever we learn here, I think is going to be useful in any model that you write in a more complete sense. Okay? So it's portable, it's like a chip that you can plug into any computer. Okay? Alright, so what do I find? And I'm going to summarize the results before showing you some simple arguments. I'm going to give you this, this coefficient fee, tell you what it is, um, and, and, and simply no one had asked what is this pass-through. And I'm going to do that in a wider set of models. As I said, in the stylized model it will come out to be one, but that's, we want to learn more realistically what it might be. And finally, I'm going to break down expectations to see if it's short-run expectations or long-run expectations that matter. There's a focus in policy discussions often on the long-term expectations or inflation target in the long run. Okay? We're going to see actually that the, the, the economic logic tells us, no, it's short-run expectations in that. Okay? So to do this, I need to go back to this equation I showed you earlier. I want to characterize phi. I want to condition on other stuff. What do I mean by condition on other stuff? I want to hold everything else fixed that's real. So I want to hold how big, my, if I'm a firm, how big my demand curve, how, how far out it is, how much demand I have for my product, what my real, the real prices I'm going to face in input markets and so on. So everything that's real, either relative prices and quantities, I want to hold fixed. And I just want to capture that I woke up and suddenly think inflation is going to be 10%. Okay? 
So let me show you a wrong answer, actually, which people uh, gravitate to, and I used to gravitate to myself, which is the following. That if you look at a standard model, it's very famous, the Newcastle Phillips curve, it takes this shape. Okay? And um, beta here is a discount factor that's very close to 1. Okay? So I'm not going to split hairs about that. Let's think beta is basically 1. Okay? So one interpretation is I look at this equation and, aha, it looks, x here is the output gap, or, or x less than x. Okay? So looking at beta near 1, you say, well, basically then phi is 1, is near 1. Okay? And this is wrong for the following reason. You can solve this equation out also, substituting forward. Okay, this is sometimes done, not as frequently as this, the first version of this equation. But a second version of this equation, which is equally correct, is to say that inflation is the present value, okay, discounted by beta, of output gaps. But if I use the second version, inflation doesn't appear, so I should conclude phi is zero. So now I have a problem. I'm getting two answers. Okay, which one's right? Well, they have to be both wrong in some sense. Uh, you can't get these two answers and they'd be right. So it's a sign that something's wrong. And what is wrong intuitively? These equations, when they're derived, one imposes rational expectations. So you're not able to do the experiment where people wake up and suddenly have a higher you know, expected inflation. Because of that, it's just the wrong way to go. Because basically, output gaps in the future are going to be tied to the hip with inflation expectations. Okay? The only reason we can expect inflation to be higher in the future is if we think there's going to be excess demand. So we can't do the aesthetic body, which I said we needed to do, the holding, fix, the real stuff. Okay, so now let me give you a figure that I think conveys the intuition why phi is likely, in, in many cases, to be less than 1. And significantly less than 1. This is the problem of a firm that, up to the solid line, uh, up to that point I'm marking there, was expecting, oops, expecting to have no inflation. Okay. But suddenly woke up and thinks inflation is 10%, which is the dash line. Okay. And uh, suppose they're pricing equal to their, their cost, and what I'm showing you is what they think their cost is going to be. Okay. We can add a constant so that there's a markup. Okay. Uh, that's not going to interfere with any of the arguments. All right, so, um, so this is the marginal cost, and it's going up 10% a year. Okay. So that's the slope of the dash line. They woke up, and that's what they think. But they need to set the price today, which is the blue line. And they're going to set it in January, and it's going to be, it's, their price is sticky. It's going to be around until December. Okay? They're going to reset their price the next January for 12 months. Okay? So think of this as a service, maybe, or you know, Netflix choosing its prices, or an Apple product, and so on. Okay? This is an alternative model, actually, to the Calvo one, that I think is much more realistic for a bunch of goods. A bunch of goods have when people set the price, they know how long it's going to be until they reset the price. Okay? Think of services and so on, a big part of the economy. So what are you going to do? Well, intuitively, if you keep the price at marginal cost today, marginal cost is going to go up in, in February, March, April, your price is going to be too low. Okay? So what you do is you go halfway and you choose a price that's 5% higher. Because then it's going to be perfect in July. Okay? And and, you know, on average, then, it will be as good as we can. So intuitively, the blue line is 5% above instead of 7. Okay? And that's what I call overshoot. So that's, people just woke up with a higher expectation of inflation. And because of that, they overshot the price relative to their static optimum. So if today they could, or, or if they could always have a flexible price, they wouldn't have raised the price by 5% today. Because their marginal cost hasn't gone up yet. 
So that overshooting is what means that firms are, some firms are setting a higher price, and that is creating inflation. So higher expected inflation does generate inflation, but notice, half of, of the 10%, 5%. And so this argument explains why fee in this model is actually one half instead of one, which is a big difference, I think. Okay? And such a simple model takes us there, a realistic model, I would say. Okay? All right, so, so, it's, it, so what's not obvious here is that if, I, if the firm is setting its price every six months, the same argument goes through. Let me to give you a quick intuition for that is, now, if I said every six months, I'm only worried that my price between January and June is going to go up 5%. So I'm going to overshoot by 2.5% instead of 5. But if, 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 if all firms are setting prices every six months, then there's twice as many firms setting their price today. So the 2.5 is going to be done by twice as many firms, and that's why the result is not going to depend on how sticky prices are. Okay? Right. All right, so... Um, we, I, I generalize this result, the, the, the Taylor, this, this kind of constant price for a year or for six months or three months is a special model as well. What I do is I write down a more general model where you, you're going to have some chance of changing your price depending on how old your price is. This is known as a time-dependent uh, model. And for that model, turns out though you get a very simple answer that the right fee, let me just go straight to the answer, is a ratio of two empirically uh, in principle, empirically uh, obtainable numbers. So what you need to do is know the ratio of the ongoing duration of prices to the ratio of completed durations. What does that mean? Ongoing duration means walk into a store and point at a random good and ask how old that price is. And write it down and then take an average. Okay? And the completed duration is wait until the spell is done and then write down the number and average it. Okay, so if you take the ratio of these two numbers, it will give you what the correct number for fee. And in the exponential Calvo case, where you have a constant probability of changing a price, these two numbers are the same. So that's why you get fee one. But in the Taylor case, you on average walk in halfway in a store on a, on a, on a price spell, and so fee is one half. Okay? And this generalizes this result, and, 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 and uh, I'm exploring this empirically now uh, with Raphael Schoenberg. Okay, let me um, talk about the short run versus long run inflation expectations. So up to now I've been assuming that firms wake up, they think inflation is going to be 10%, they experienced zero inflation in the past, um, now I want to generalize both things. So I'm going to instead assume, that instead of them thinking inflation is going to be forever 10%, imagine they think it's going to be 10% for a year, then it'll go down to 5% because the central banks will do their job, and then it'll go down to, to 3 and then back to 2 Okay. So that's what I have here in the first uh, terms. I've now allowed the expectation to depend on the horizon. Okay? So the previous case was when I assumed that expectation was constant, in which case you can factor it out, and I was characterizing the sum of those coefficients. So what I was calling phi was the sum of these first uh, coefficients. But now I want to look at the shape of those coefficients as a function of the horizon. Okay? Um, and the main result I get here is very simple. It's that you get these fees have to be declining, and de they're positive and declining, and they decline quickly. So in particular, what I mean by quickly is, if you're not sure if you're changing your price in six months or in a year, or in maybe a, two, two years maybe, but you're pretty sure by year two you're going to change your price, then the fee on inflation expectations 
two and a half years from now is zero. Okay? You don't care at all what inflation is after two years. Okay? And this is so simple and obvious. I mean, like, I think if I explain this to someone running a business, they said, obviously, why? I mean, I'm setting my price at most for two years. Why would I care what inflation is going to be, you know, in year three or four for this pricing decision? It might matter for other things. Um, then, you know, but at the same time, it goes very counter to the intuition people have that what matters most is long-run inflation expectations. Okay. Now, I don't have time to explain why that doesn't mean that tracking long-run expectations is wrong. Okay, there might be reasons we worry about long-run expectations. I'm just saying they don't matter directly for inflation today. Okay? All right. The next thing is, before I, I assumed inflation was zero in the past, that was just to simplify. Now, suppose there has been inflation in the past. Okay? Then, here I have the whole lag of inflations in the past. Okay? And what I can say about these coefficients uh, is that, in general, they're not zero. In the Calvo case, they're zero, so we get used to thinking about that. But in general, they're not zero, and in fact, the sum of the forward coefficients and the backwards one sums to one. So if you manage, if, if I go to Taylor, let's say, instead of Calvo, where the coefficients on the future terms was a half, then the, the sum of the terms on the past has to be a half. Okay? And that's more general. So the, the more you knock down the effect that expectations have, the more you have to bring up the effect that the past inflation has. Okay? Um, so as an Argentine, I find this interesting because people do talk about inflation inertia. And there's some indirect ways of getting inflation inertia. One is that you think expectations is all that matters, but expectations are, they don't move very quickly, maybe they're not fully rational. Okay? Um, another is that there's indexation in the economy. But this is an intrinsic inertia that the model has just from nominal rigidities. Okay? Uh, and I find that interesting. So it's very hard, I think, uh, yeah, to, to dismiss the idea of inertia. There are many reasons for it. Let me comment on that in terms of policy. So this is, by, by knocking down inflation expectations, you may think, especially if you think recently, that I'm trying to be dovish here. Like, the Fed or the central bank shouldn't worry about inflation because the particular inflation expectations are not so, such a big concern. But the fact that past inflation matters more, it goes the other way. So this is just science. It's not about trying to get a dovish result or a hawkish result. Okay? It, it cuts both ways. All right? But I think we need to figure things out better. We need to understand the solo surface, not the simple-minded Phillips curve. Okay, there's other models of pricing that have become uh, of interest for economists that endogenize whether you change your price. And I'm not going to go into details here. These are models where people pay a cost to change their price. They don't pay it all the time because that would be too costly, so prices do remain uh, sticky for a while, but if it's a big incentive enough, they will change their price. And it's not something you know, fixed in time or random. Okay, those models imply that, I think something very intuitive, that you typically will want your price to be like in a band, plus minus, let's say, 5% around an ideal price. So I might want a markup of 20% over my cost, and that would be my ideal, but I'm going to allow it to be plus 25 and plus 15 in that range. Okay? And that's a very sensible uh, policy. It comes out to be optimal if you have to pay costs for changing prices. So in this model, it's different than the other model. I asked the same question. What if people woke up and they just thought inflation is higher? This is what I get. I'm, not, I'm going to spare you the details of the argument. This is what I get. It depends on the parameters. So depending on the parameters, 
you get something like the blue line, or you can creep up to something like the black line. And what I'm showing you here is what happens each day within a quarter, okay, 90 days. Um, in fact, the blue line, for some parameters, inflation falls when people suddenly think inflation is going to be higher. So that's a little weird, okay? But the end result after a quarter is not so weird. It's very sensible. In fact, after a quarter, the results are kind of broadly between 0.5 and 1, okay? So the pass-through is very similar to the answers we got earlier after a quarter, okay? That's kind of interesting. So these more modern models of nominal rigidities have uh, pretty similar conclusions. However, I'm going to push a crazy idea that I don't think is crazy. But um, the following, do you really think that if people woke up and thought inflation is going to be higher, that they will immediately change the bands they're using? I want to argue no, that there are frictions to doing so. It's you know, too much of a bother. Maybe they'll keep their plus minus 5% band. Right? Why is that? Let me try and push it two ways. One is that's a pretty robust policy to, to just have my price being plus minus 5. Why? Because if inflation does pick up or if it doesn't, either way my price is going to be hugging my ideal price by plus minus 5% error. Okay? So it doesn't get out of whack if my inflation turns out to be too high. In contrast, in the time-dependent world, if you don't change what you're doing, it's going to be terrible. Okay? Uh, so in this world, instead, having a plus-minus rule of 5% is a pretty robust rule. Number one reason for having it. The second reason, oh, and let me argue, that implies that the pass-through fee is zero. So if every, every firm holds their bands the same, the pass-through is going to be zero. Okay? The reason is firms are not changing their behavior until actually their costs change, and so the pass-through is zero. Okay. From the fact that they woke up and thought inflation is going to be higher is not going to change their behavior. It's kind of trivial, but it has important implications, and I think it's reasonable because when I teach menu cost models, many students say, wait, menu cost, that's so cheap, and nowadays we can put the price on a computer, update it. However, often then we counter the argument by saying, no, Think of that, not literally, but think of that as really capturing manager time, figuring out what price you want to set, okay, and so on. And, but I think if you think that way, you have to think that the manager that changes bands is going to really have to think hard about that problem, and they're not going to do it if the change in inflation expectation is not too large. So what I did is write a model where there's manager costs, so we call that menu cost and manager costs, so MC squared, okay, in honor of a famous equation. And the point is, if the shock to expectations is not too big, so maybe between 0 and 10%, they won't change their bands. Maybe if you go from 0 to 40%, they will. Okay? But that implies in the range where you don't change them, that the fee is 0. Okay? So this is suggested that we've been using as a benchmark fee 1, but there are a lot of other possibilities that seem reasonable to me. Okay? And we need to explore this further. All right, so. Now let me get to this third paper, which is about uh, wages and prices. And um, let me show you the timeline in the U.S. So historically, wages grow more than prices. Good thing, that means the real wage is growing. Um, then uh, when inflation picked up, it surpassed uh, uh, wage growth, so the real wage was falling. Okay. Now, people back here, some people predicted, I stopped the... The, the data point exactly when the stimulus plan was enacted in the US. Some people predicted this is going to produce inflation. They were right, although I'm not sure for the right reasons, but it doesn't matter. But they also predicted that 
that it was because the labor market was hot. In the U.S. it was particularly hot even before the pandemic. And that that was going to drive wages up and that was going to drive prices up. They got that wrong. Okay? Because it was prices that went up and wages that took longer to even start going up and then never went up as much as prices. And then, more recently, as, as price inflation cooled, the concern has been the reverse, that now wage growth continues and will this mean that you know, we've, we've reached lower inflation but we're going to have to go back to, firms are going to have to start raising prices if wages keep growing. Okay? Um, so this is a paper with Lorenzoni we wrote. Let me just tell you real quick, it's a very simple model, close to the New Keynesian model. It has nominal regimes for wages and prices, and it has one thing that is sometimes missing, which is an input. So if we want to think of supply shocks, one of the things I think we have to think about for the reopening is that there were shortages of some inputs. Okay? And so what we do is we include a non-labor input that's in, going to be in short supply, okay? in an elastic short supply. Okay? So again, think of the chips, the lumber, the transport, the energy, those things uh, uh, in a stylized way are captured by this. Okay? So the key thing is that that scarce input is going to imply that that price of the input is going to jump up a lot. And that's going to create inflation even though wages haven't necessarily reacted. Okay? Very simple story. I think some people I read, like you know, the Bank of England, some. We're talking in, in, in these terms, okay? What this paper is trying to do is, is, is write down a model with these properties that, uh, that justifies this kind of intuitive take. And then the concern about wage price spirals is a concern that there will be a feedback, that now wages will react and that will start up a, a spiral. And what we're going to say is there will be a feedback in this model, okay? So beware, okay? So we're going to study supply and demand shocks. So let me show you a supply shock. So suppose the amount of energy goes down, the amount of chips goes down, or the prices of them go up, or similar. So the top panel is the shock to the quantities here. So let's say there's fewer chips or fewer uh, lumber, fewer energy. And look at the third panel. That's the first thing I want to show you. The price of that good, this input, jumps up. So that's not inflation of this good, it's the actual price. So that captures like oil, you know, it jumps up and then it's maybe recovering down. Okay. And the second panel shows the effects that has on, on price inflation and on wage growth. And what I want to stress mainly is that the uh, price inflation is higher than wage growth initially. So higher than the red line, the blue line, and then they cross. The bottom panel then tells you the, the implication of that, which is the real wage initially falls and then recovers. Okay? Now it turns out that the supply shock is very similar to a demand shock. So if I do a demand shock, I'll get very similar dynamics. Okay? So that implies that it's not a good diagnostic to see what happened to the real wage, to see whether it went up or down to know whether it was a supply or demand shock. Okay? Unlike maybe our, more, our simplest model. Okay? And the bottom line is this model has those three phases I was talking about. A first phase where there's a huge jump in the price of the inputs and, and the price inflation rises. Uh, it could also be showing up in profits. There are people who've remarked the profits have gone up, and some people uh, being nasty to them call it greedflation. Um, that is actually something possible here. Now imagine this supply that's fixed is owned by the firm, its capacity. Then you wouldn't see it in prices, you would see it in shadow prices. And shadow prices are profits. Okay? So the model can justify 
the firms that found themselves, you know, restaurants when they reopened in the U.S. at least, the restaurants just didn't have enough tables, okay, um, and prices went up. So then, in a the second phase, wage growth starts uh, overtaking price inflation. However, they both fall back to target and and without the need of a recession here. So I didn't. So there's a spiral in the sense that there's a feedback, but there's no spiraling out of control. Okay, so it's an optimistic message. Okay, and you might ask, why is it that wage growth could be higher than price inflation, and not lead to more inflation? And the reason is, and I think this was missing in simple discussions of this policy issue, is you're not at ground zero anymore. After a year, the real wage has fallen, so now there's room for it to recover if the price of energy has come down. Okay, so it's that simple logic. I mean, again, it's just so simple, but you know. When we're in a rush, we, we sometimes miss these simple points. Okay, so that's the, that's the basic point. There's some caveats. If you have non-rational expectations in a certain way, then you can get a more protracted uh, way back. They can, can, they, they can produce kind of a, 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 a nasty way spiral. Okay, but under rational expectations, this is not the case. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Okay, I talked about how that relates to these comments Blanchard Summers made. I just want to mention that Blanchard Bernanke followed that up, and they kind of agreed that the inflation was mainly commodity prices and supply chains and not in the labor market. And that's the message of this paper. The inflation can be coming from these supply constraints and not then in the labor market. Now, I believe there might have been some combination. This is isolating one case or the other. In fact, let me say that I think if you marry this paper with the first one I talked about, you can think that it is important to think of the market separately and the shift in demand across sectors. But then I would stress that it's not necessarily within those sectors, uh, the labor market necessarily had always overheated. Maybe in some cases it was, but in some cases it was the supply constraints. And you're much more likely to hit the supply constraints if there was this heterogeneity. All right, there's been some other work here uh, that I just wanted to flag. Well, let me talk about this last paper and, um, and, and say, this paper is a little inspired by thinking harder about inflation, but perhaps it's, you know, it's, it goes a, a bit further beyond, it's more conceptual. And the questions we're asking there is, how do we really think about inflation in a deeper way, in a more general way? Because I've invited you to think about you know, these, these uh, richer ways of thinking. What's the richest way of thinking? Okay? Um, and what our answer is gonna be that a, a useful, rich way of thinking is to think that you need two ingredients to think about inflation. One, is conflict or a disagreement on relative prices, okay? And that goes against, if you learn micro, you learn, well, we think about raising equilibrium, we think of relative prices, but we have nothing to say about inflation, okay? Inflation is something else, about absolute prices. And instead, I'm gonna be pushing this idea that it's good to think about relative prices, but the disagreement among agents in those relative prices. And the other feature is staggered prices which is uh, one of the main things, an amazing thing, I think, that macroeconomics introduced, okay? And what I'm trying to do in this paper is really distill, hence, a very nice feature that's in our macro models. 
which is the staggering, without all the other simplifying special, not necessarily as nice assumptions. Okay? Um, so in some sense, trying to be more general, but keep the, keep the main things we needed. Okay? So one way to think about what I'm doing in this paper is, we're going to be looking at the pricing choices that firms and, and, and make, and it could also be workers if you think they're, they're thinking about setting their wage or, or demanding a certain wage, and that's a game these agents are playing, and we're going to solve that game and, 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 and figure out what inflation is going to be. Okay? And what I'm going to claim is it's a useful way to think about what happens with inflation to think about this disagreement they have on relative prices, which we call conflict. Okay? Uh, the reason we call it conflict is this is in honor of a literature that exists, it's sometimes labeled post-Keynesian that has used that term. Okay? All right? So what we're doing here is trying to modern, provide a modern take on this uh, literature that fits in with standard macro. Okay? Um, and the way I'm thinking about it in a standard macro model is I have to take something as given to solve this game. And I'm going to take as given these desired relative prices they have, which we call aspirations. Um, and a full macro model would also model those aspirations. Okay? A full model does everything. But we don't want to always do a full model. Okay? Uh, sometimes we learn in macro, we always have to write down the whole model. But, you know, no, we learn also that sometimes it's useful to think of a block, of a part of a model. And the reason is, if I learn what this, this block does, I can think across a wide set of models with that question mark for the other part. Okay? And that's a useful kind of way of thinking. This has, of course, a long tradition when thinking about consumption. Everyone nowadays is doing incomplete markets and thinking of the consumption block. Okay? It's the same thing. When people do that, they take interest rates as given, income is given, but those things are not exogenous. They're part of a bigger model. But it's still useful to think about that block. Okay? So it's completely analogous. The other diagram I'm going to show you to explain what this idea is, is that inflation is going to be generated by conflict, I'm going to say. That doesn't, and only conflict, that does not mean traditional stories are wrong. So demand, having too much excess demand, can create greater conflict and create inflation. Okay? And the, the way that would go is too much demand maybe will make workers demand a higher real wage, kind of the simplest story, and that's going to create a higher relative price that they want relative to what firms want, and that's going to create inflation. Now, monetary policy can affect demand and hence affect inflation, and so can fiscal policy. So if you have a traditional model in mind, it fits perfectly in here. We're nesting the traditional model. What this allows you to do in that case is just give you a different perspective. But the, what I like best about this is it also lets you think outside the box about other effects. So it lets you think of expectations in a more direct way, and it lets you think of labor market institutions potentially uh, as, as mattering. So I'm from Argentina. If you ask me how do we lower inflation, our inflation is in the three digits now annually, um, does it matter whether you have the unions on your side or not? I would say it would matter. Okay? But that's hard for me to fit into my basic macro 101. But with this framework, I'm able to think about that uh, somewhat and maybe then write down a full model. <coughs> anyway, you can also think of energy shocks and, and real rigidities um, and maybe who knows what else. All right? So that's how I think about this. Okay, I'm going to skip this um, in the interest of time and say what we do in this paper is two things. First, we provide a very stylized model that is, you know, it, it's not a realistic model on, on purpose. It's not realistic. It's a model that's trying to get an intuition and make you think outside the box. And in that model, what we do is we write down a model where there's no money, where there's no credit, no saving, no interest rates, no employment, no output. 
So it's an endowment economy, it's your Edgeworth box. Okay? And in that model, we show that we can still think about inflation with staggered prices. Okay? And, um, but the main thing then is, you, you're not, and we get that there is inflation sometimes. But you cannot now say there's inflation because you're printing too much money. There's no mo money in the model. Or you can't say there's inflation because you've set interest rates wrong. There's no interest rates in the model. You can't say there's inflation because the labor market is overheated. There is no labor market. Okay? Uh, so it for it's trying to force you to think of something new if you were resisting and think of this disagreement of relative prices as one way to think about it. Okay? The second part of the paper, what it does is it writes a more standard model that nests the, the traditional modern macro models, new Keynesian models, so to speak, but much more general with a network uh, of, of event sectors. And that goal there is to bridge these ideas of, of conflict with modern macro. Okay? Okay. So, um, so let me go very briefly on the stylized model just and, and, and give you a sense of the Edward Fox here. So this is a model where there's two agents, and, I, and agent A owns a good A, and agent B owns a good B, and they can trade, um, and uh, they have some preference over consuming both goods, they don't just want to consume what they own. Um, so if you're doing a competitive equilibrium, the Edgeworth box might look like something like this. The endowment is in the right uh, bottom corner, and the comparative equilibrium here with everything symmetric is a relative price of one, and the equilibrium is there. Okay? But I don't want to do the comparative equilibrium. Okay? One thing you know, macros introduces is perfect competition, staggered prices, so I want a world like that. So instead, and this is also, you know, Michael has done this, mass control, thought about staggered prices, and, 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 and market power. So instead let me do this something like Maskin's Roll actually. In even periods, A sets the price and in odd periods, B sets the price. And what I mean by a price is an absolute price, so here's what I'm going to say. You write down a number. And you, I write down on my whiteboard, you write it on your whiteboard. And it's just a number. However, uh, it could be the convention is that it's a currency, but we don't actually own that currency. It's like we're in prison. You know, in prison, maybe we still use the dollar as a reference, but you can't have dollars, okay? Um, so there's no currency or money held whatsoever, okay? And trade takes place then by barter, has to. And what we do is we take the ratio of the prices on our whiteboards, and then one of the people decides how much quantity to trade, and the other person can say no. So it's a fully specified, explicit form dynamic game, okay? So the nice thing about this is it's like a macro without inside baseball. You can, you can tell some game theorists this game. And when you solve it, I'm going to cut to the chase, you, you get something very intuitive, which is, relative to the comparative equilibrium, I want my price to be higher. I have a little monopoly power now. And because of that, I'm going to choose a price above one, a, a relative price above one. But when it's your turn, you're going to do the same. But because these prices are staggered, that implies that the absolute prices have to be growing. Okay? So the outcome in an Edgeworth box is viewed this way. Agent A wants the relative price to be above one. Agent B wants the relative price to be below one. They don't agree on it, so they kind of fluctuate there. And, but the way that, that plays out in absolute terms is growth. So here I'd like to give a metaphor for this with animals. Okay? So how can something about relatives imply something about absolutes? Um, so it, imagine you have a gazelle in, in, a, in a savanna full of great grass. Okay? And there's a lion too. And uh, they don't care where they are because the grass is good everywhere. But the uh, gazelle wants to stay a hundred 
uh, yards from, from, the, from the lion. Okay? And the lion wants to be 50 yards away. Why? Because with 50, it can find the right moment and surprise the gazelle in the end. Okay? Now, what happens over time is, if, if we think that they're making this kind of decision in a staggered fashion, they look over, they see, then they adjust, the gazelle might see the lion's too close, so move away to make sure he's 100 feet away, but then the lion, when it's turn, gets closer, and the gazelle moves away again, because the lion, you see what I'm talking about. Now they move in absolute space, even though they have no preference about where to be in absolute space. And they may even climb a mountain to do this, okay? To get away, you know, so, so that's inflation. It's this miscoordinated disagreement on our relative prices that drives up absolute prices. All right, I think in the interest of time, I'm gonna skip this uh, second model, just mention, the main elements are that it's a, a macro model with n sectors, with a network technology. And what we do there is define a notion of, of, of conflict and show you that that notion is useful for thinking about inflation in, in, in this model in two ways. The main result is that, um, that when you take as given, so what we do is take as given some aspirations and we define there to be conflict, okay? Let me show you this uh, definition of conflict. If you cannot find prices that makes everyone happy, if you cannot find prices that make everyone reach their relative price goals, okay? So that's like in the, in the, in the gazelle and the lion, you cannot find a place to put them where they're happy, okay? Um, and, in that case, there's conflict. And what we show is that there's conflict then if the weighted sum of the A's is not equal to zero. So if, you know, my aspirations are too high and yours are also too high, there's conflict. And the main result, and I'm cutting to the chase here, I'm not going to show you the details, is that inflation, the average inflation across sectors is going to be proportional to conflict. Okay? And often when we teach inflation, we say inflation is not the increase in one price, it's the generalized increase in prices. So that implies that if you want inflation, you need conflict. Likewise, what we show is if you take any sector and you look at a long-run average over time in inflation in that sector, that is going to converge to the long-run average of conflict, okay? So also, we also teach undergrads, inflation is not a one-time increase in the price, it's a, it's a relatively persistent one. And so for that, then, you need conflict, okay? So in both senses, justifies the title, which is inflation is conflict, okay? So let me conclude here. Uh, I think I went over time, and I'd like to get some questions. So just that I touched on some practical implications, but also some conceptual points that asymmetric shocks are important for thinking about cost push, that inflation expectations matter, but maybe have a smaller role than usually attributed, and that wage price spirals are real in the sense that there's a feedback, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're gonna spiral out of control. Okay, you can get a soft landing, conflict, that it's this more general and intuitive way, I think, of thinking about inflation, that can fit in with our modern macro models. There's no conflict between a conflict view and the modern macro models. There's coming work I wouldn't have time to think about. Let me end on a philosophical point. We often think we learn, okay, because we had some view of the world, maybe here summarized by this parameter. I think it's at that value. I see some event and I revise my view, okay? That's one way we learn, though. I think sometimes, and maybe this episode is a different kind of learning, where I had some view, but I knew I had some uncertainty about it. But maybe I was quite confident this is the blue distribution, my pride. And then something happened, and you know what? Now I know I know less. And that's still knowledge, okay? To know you know less when you really didn't know it is a good thing, okay? 
That's what I hope happens with my five-year-old, who's very certain of the world uh, until he becomes an adult. He'll probably learn that many of the things he thought he, he knew were, were not true. And so I think it's a time for open-minded research, uh, and I've been trying to engage in that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ivan, for a phenomenally insightful lecture. So we will take questions from the audience. Um, we take three at a time. We start with Ben here in front. Uh, uh, here. Uh, please say your name and if you can, your affiliation as well. Um, thank you very much. Uh, sorry, Ben Broadbent. Uh, that was fantastic. Um, and, you know, at Central Bank, certainly at the Bank of England, this is very much how we thought of certainly your point about asymmetric shocks and cost butch. It's very much how we thought of it, and we were definitely in 2021, we were in team transitory, if I can reintroduce the word for that reason. Um, and I also found all this stuff about conflict very interesting. I had two just questions for you about and about human nature and the one very trivial one is by the way my observation would be even though this should be how people react uh, yeah. that in times of enormous uncertainty people seem to react the other way that because my null is now harder to reject i'm going to believe it even more forcefully than i do because you have to disprove it and it's now harder to disprove so unfortunately we we don't as human yeah. beings seem to react in that way we seem to get more more dug in the other question for you is general one about conflict and people's aspirations. The thing that certainly surprised us, at least surprised me the most in, say, 2022 and earlier this year, was, was the reaction of, the, the extent of the reaction in wages, and more generally what we call second round effects, uh, which was definitely bigger here than in, than in the US or even than in continental Europe. Um, although most markedly relative to the United States. And I think it mattered. You, know, you said at the beginning you talked about the Ukraine shock. I mean, it was enormously different in Europe. You know, it was adding, whatever, five percentage points to inflation, I think, the energy price stuff at the top, and maybe one in the US. And that had a huge effect on, I mean, we, national income, the overall rise in import price is probably enough at the peak to reduce it by 6%. That's since come off. Is it plausible to think that people are very loss averse and that the effects of those are asymmetric and that if your aspiration is, I don't know, just a positive real wage growth, that the implication of what you're showing would be sort of non-linearly worse as you move below zero, as it were, that if my aspiration is, I don't know, I just want to keep my real wage going, that I have very severe effects when I move below that, whereas if my aspiration was two and I get one, the effects are much more moderate. I don't know, that would be my intuition, but certainly the extent of the reaction here to those losses was very big, I think. Um, we'll take two, um, three at a time. Yeah. Ricardo next, just because he's close, and then we'll go to um, back. So I, this may be a longer discussion, but I all of your results on the expectations, Ivan, make sense to me. All of them are correct. And yet I come to the end and I say that inflation, the coefficient is one and the inflation is still expectations. But I hope it's not because I'm a closed-minded researcher. <laughs> and here's why. 
The economic logic for why the coefficient is one, I will state it in general terms and I'll tell you why it matches your model. If all of us right now start expecting inflation to be higher, or even just that the price level doubles, from an old wisdom from David Hume, I will as a price setter want to double my prices, Ben will want to double his wages, someone else will want to double his number of quantities, and therefore expecting inflation to be 100% turns into inflation being 100% and the coefficient is one. This logic comes from no money illusion as we often teach it in micro. It is true in the model that you wrote as well, insofar as this is just, I think, a very powerful logic. That is not the experiment that you did. You did, what if I expect inflation to be somewhat higher now? How much does it translate to inflation right now, given a price rigidity? Or if I expect inflation to be very high in the future, given the staggering? But instead, in your model, what if I expect inflation to be higher now and forever persistently? Then, as you noted, the sum of coefficients in your phi's is one. That is, once this fits in persistently, both counting looking forward and looking backwards, inflation will be, if all of us go from inflation is zero to inflation is two, now and forever, as enough time goes by and adjustment goes, inflation is now zero from zero to two, that is the coefficient is one. Because when I think of the coefficient being one, it's not that the impact right now is one, it's precisely the logic that you yourself used in saying, wait, this has to be one, and that intuition, going back to Milton Friedman, is a very powerful one, because if it wasn't one, then us just expecting something could lead to a permanent recession, or a permanent, which it seems hard to believe. So that's why I understand, but just at least to defend why the phi equals one is such a power hold, and which is not to say that, of course, what if people expect now temporary, like you say, is it less than one? Yes, it is. What if they expect that it's higher for a while? What is the difference between the longer and the shorter, and all of your points are correct? But just to say that the the power of the one was even in your slides, those coefficients have to add up to one. And that's because it comes from such an important money, no money illusion result. Let, let me default here. Let's start with this two. And oh, then great, great. Because we only have one microphone. So you can start moving it. Uh, yeah, so let me start with in reverse order. Um, I think it's still the right thing to do is to spell out all these coefficients. And then depending on how you want to use them, uh, you come up with different experiments. Uh, I fully agree, and I tried to say, it's, it doesn't push you to be dovish, if that's the bottom line you most care about. Um, but I still think it's the right split to say, hey, the expectation effect is this, past inflation has this other effect, hence in steady state, I can still get a, a reaction one for one. That's, I think, what you're describing. But in terms of the actual experiment you're doing, it's a little tricky because I don't want to do that because I don't want to model expectations so much. I want to imagine you woke up and you're worried expectations are higher, but if, if that, when you woke up and you saw 10%, inflation was only five, do I still think you're gonna still think it's 10? I mean, I'm willing to think about that, but that will cut into your, your argument because maybe if we think that they revise it down, we won't get 10% then. So it is still, I think, important to do the breakdown and that the particular experiment you make is a particular one that I think we might not want to always adopt. Uh, to your question about uh, absolutely these aspirations, there's a very nice paper by uh, Blanchard and Gali about oil uh, price shocks that I read and I think I reminded them they had forgotten about it. I thought it's super important for what happened here in Europe. And my view is now that uh, this conflict inflation framework we've developed is an easy way to think about that model. 
what they wrote down is a model that's basically an Occasian model, but also workers have a behavioral constraint that they want a certain real wage. So if, if the price of oil goes up, or, or gas for them, they still, you know, the yellow jackets in France, they're going to be angry, they want those wages. Um, and uh, that would be a different model of aspirations that are neoclassical, my marginal utility versus my disutility of labor. And I think we should be open to those stories. We see some burnt cars. And, um, and so, so, absolutely. That's one reason we're doing it. I had slides about that, but I decided to skip them. Is that I think the standard pricing is a beautiful thing, a huge advance in macro, and then some other things too. But then often we get caught in a very simple model of the labor market, overseas simplified, and it's good to have this framework where we can now think outside the box in that way. So, I completely agree. Thanks. Um, the gentleman. Yeah, I've got a very uh, simple and short question. Uh, is the mission accomplished? Um, can we claim the victory over inflation, or is it too soon to tell? <laughs> and the gentleman uh, to your right. Yes, Stefano Bonfen. My question is concerning the digitalization. You don't think that you need some kind of data, more input on data. You start with data. And I was expecting the inflation in relation with data. Thank you. Thanks. Can you take this? Um, Sorry, I, I wasn't sure I understood the, the, the question. Sorry, could you repeat? Shortly, there is too much theory and less evidence uh -huh. in the approach. OK, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <more> comment. <laughs> OK, it's a comment, not a question. I, I agree that this is a, a, a mainly theoretical what I'm doing. It's very inspired by the 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 events and the data, hence. Um, like I said, I think there are complements, the data and the, and the theory. Um, I have more to offer on the theory, but I consume the empirics, and I think these, these need to, these, these need to do, be intertwined. Um, the other question was mission accomplished. Um, I, well, first of all, in the US, it does seem like if you, if you look at uh, PCE, um, and if you look at uh, the recent wage growth, um, there's blips, there, you know, there's room for some uncertainty in saying let's wait longer, but it does look uh, pretty, pretty close now. Um, I'm not someone dedicated to this mission accomplished or which team won, as I mentioned. I've instead tried to be inspired to think about our conceptual frameworks more uh, than, than keeping a tab on, on the details of that. But I do think that broadly speaking, uh, this is played out more in a cost push way and in a wage feedback but not necessarily spiraling out of control way and where inflation expectations had a, a, a smaller role um, even though they might have given us some reasons to be concerned but maybe uh, with this uh, way of thinking and maybe not as big as concern. Yep, we have um, a question here. Yes, uh, please say your name and your affiliation, um, especially if you're a student. <laughs> Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Vinayak. I'm studying the MSc Economics at the LSE. Uh, my question is that the data shows that since the 2000, there has been a steady decline in the labor share in the US. Uh, so is there a bridge between such long-term trends and this particular uh, episode of conflict being particularly poisonous? Hello, thank you for a wonderful lecture. I'd just like to ask, uh, do you have any thoughts on inflation in Japan going forward? And uh, they're trying to drive it with wage growth primarily. So it's a bit of background. 
Okay, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I don't have any particular views I would want to share now on inflation in Japan. I don't. I'm not an expert. I prefer not to talk out of place. Um, but I, I'd be happy to look into that. Um, and the Any labor share, questions? I do have some views. Eh? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the labor share, um, th that simple model I wrote down would imply that the labor share should fall temporarily because there's real wages have fallen in that model. The wage price spiral paper explains why the real wage would fall, which would contribute to seeing profits going up, I said, and the labor share falling. However, in the model, it would be temporary. So I think uh, you would see the recovery. And um, some aggregate measures like the labor share hide a lot of things that's happening across the distribution. So labor economists like uh, Otter and Dubé have been pointing out that at the bottom of the distribution there's been gains in real wages by now uh, for some groups. So, um, so I, I, my general point would be uh, the simple theory I laid out would explain a, a temporary reduction, but there might be other things like the work from home, the automation that's happened that might be contributing to some of the other trends um, and, and that there's a, a richer picture when you, you break it up uh, uh, by groups. So there's a question um, online. Um, given that the drivers of UK inflation have been largely um, external cost push shocks, what would have happened if, and are unwinding now, what would have happened if interest rates didn't increase by as much? It's a longer question, but... If, if interest rates had increased? Or? Had not increased oh, as see. much. I see. Uh, and there's another question okay. about uh, Argentina, whether you comment on, can comment on how, how it is different from uh, inflation in advanced economies. Okay, thanks for these questions. Um, this is fun. I mean, uh, even in the U.S., I would, I would say the comparable. I, I find myself not in one team or the other in the sense I wasn't so... I don't think the increase in interest rates was necessarily so wrong, given all the risk factors, and also because inflation went up, so the real interest rate is not being driven up by, by as much by raising the nominal interest rates. Um, so I'm, 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 you know, I'm hesitant to say any of these arguments was that you had to keep the nominal interest rate constant, uh, or that it was a terrible thing to raise interest rates, given that in, in the case of the U.S., it's not that they produced a recession. Okay. What I think would have been a mistake is following some advice that some people were saying is we're going to need a recession. So they're arguing we don't know what rates it's going to take, but let's keep going until we hit a recession. And I think that would have been a mistake in light of this kind of way of thinking. Um, and so I think it's very hard to be a central banker. These are stylized models. I think it's very important to have uh, these concepts. But then, of course, there's a lot of things that get into the picture of where you actually put the rates. I, I would say if you hadn't uh, increased rates, um, you know, likely you, you, you might have had a, a bit more of an expansion, maybe a bit more inflation. How much? It's an open question. Um, um, yeah, but then the other question was about Argentina. <laughs> what is there to say? What's happening How in Argentina? How is it different? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had some so papers funny. cited there. I've been... Thinking hard about Argentina, that's a great question. Uh, fiscal dominance is very important uh, for thinking about inflation in countries like Argentina. All the work on the Phillips curve doesn't mean fiscal and monetary uh, uh, things don't interact, okay? My view, however, on uh, this is that it, it, when it happens, it's very uh, notorious. It, um, so I think Argentina, clearly fiscal, 
the dominant situation where you have like Kagan, like Sargent and Wallace, you have a very basic story for the root cause of inflation. Okay? Um, it still has to work through these Phillips curve effects, but you have, a, you have something going, pushing monetary policy to do it. Okay? Um, so that's about Argentina. I've also written about dollarization and why I don't think it's such a good way to solve this problem, especially in the current situation where Argentina's broke and doesn't have a lot of dollars. So trying to do so would create hyperinflation in the transition, and I have some papers on that. Um, but yeah, fiscal dominance, very important for explaining some inflation. My own view, this is not asked, is it wasn't important in the US and Europe. Uh, it's, I don't believe in immaculate fiscal uh, dominant effects. I do believe fiscal policy matters. Uh, if you give out uh, checks, they will stimulate demand through the Phillips curve. But these kind of fiscal dominant through the back door, but we never see it, selecting equilibria stories, I do not buy. I see presidents calling central bankers, telling them what to do or firing them. And I think uh, that's more relevant. Thank you very much again, um, Ivan, for a fantastic talk. Uh, and please uh, join me in giving um, Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.